0: this week at Hope Point. He's forgiven everything, so all of these things are for the purpose of causing you today to say, I renounce dead, lifeless, intellectual belief, and I, maybe for the first time in my life, I am running to Jesus, and I'm gonna drink Him. I'm not going after knowledge, I'm not gonna let other people be satisfied with how much I know. I'm not gonna live behind my knowledge anymore. I'm gonna admit it's been dead, it's been intellectual, it's been factual, but it's not been him. Today I'm coming to Christ. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from God's Holy Word. I think everybody in this room uh, loves getting new things. Uh, I love a new book, How It Smells, we always love a newly painted room, how it looks. Um, we love getting a new car, for those of you who have had that experience, because it works. And uh, yesterday, I, my wife bought me a new mop, and same, the, the same mopper, but it was a new mop. I think that's why we're finally glad that we can be, or have arrived at Revelation 21, because of the emphasis on everything about to be made new. In the world when Christ returns. Chapter 21, verse 1 Then I saw a new earth, for the first earth had passed away. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So, four times already in these first five verses of chapter 21, we've seen new, but we've also seen the word new already used throughout the book. Uh, chapter 2 verse 17 says in heaven we're going to get a new name which reflects we're new, a new, new character. Uh-huh. In God, in heaven, the Bible says in Revelation three twelve, God will be known by a new name because he's going to show us some stuff about himself that is far greater than the stuff we already knew. Uh, we're going to sing a new song because of that because we're going to have a new joy that's a thousand times better than any earthly pleasure we've ever experienced and fourth, we're obviously, as we're celebrating these weeks, we're going to live on a new earth. Uh, I got a picture, a lot of pictures, <laughs> this past week from our church planner that you faithfully support. Thank you so much. Uh, in India, uh, if you're new here, we, by God's grace, we have about 280 churches in South India. And uh, this brother in the pool, uh, he's, he wrote me this past week that, uh, Richard, I was so excited. Uh, I had to stay in the pool for one hour because there were so many people. Uh, There were 40 people coming out of Hinduism that had placed their faith in Christ. And so all of them experienced the newness that is spoken of in a verse that we love around here. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come through Christ God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. If you missed last week's message, it would be worth listening to because we answered in a number of ways the age-old question of how is God able to be a law-abiding judge yet not punish citizens in his kingdom that have broken his law? That is the great question of the New Testament, and we, we answered it, you know, last week, as we all do every week through songs or, or what we teach, and, that, and that's the Christ. The 700 years before Jesus came, the prophet Isaiah said how God was going to fix that. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was on him. So nobody got away with anything, our record was transferred to Christ And he was punished for all that we had done, and then his record of righteousness was transferred, has transferred to us. And that transaction is, it didn't just produce a new record, as we saw last week. That's what produced the new joy, the new confidence, the new hope, the new elation, the new affection in our life is because of what Jesus did in the past and what he said that will lead to, and that is the new, the new earth. So now today's question is, what does it take to make sure I am a part of that new earth? Because all of this newness sounds so exciting, and this is what we're going to answer today. Oh, don't want to skip that. On the cross, Christ drank all of the wrath of God so that we will drink none of the wrath of God. So since he did all of that in the past and heaven in the future, heaven on earth, so we now want to ask, I want to be there. I want to be in the new earth. What will it take? Verse 5 and 6 answer that. He who was seated on the throne said to the thirsty, This will be a new verse for us today. I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. That's the new earth. And I will be their God and they will be my children. So there's the answer. Oh, I want to be part of the new earth. And so, what is the condition, the requirement for being there? It's to thirst. So here's where we're headed today. Look at three things in these verses. Verse six, the condition or the requirement, what does it take to be saved? I wanna be there, a new earth. This is what it takes. That's answered in verse six. Verse seven, what is the evidence that that has happened in my life? Is there any evidence it's happened in my life? Verse eight, what is the behavior of someone that this has not happened in their life? because they certainly will not be on the new earth. So let's answer that with verse five and six. He was seated on the throne, it'd be Christ, said to the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. I mean, what a magnificent picture. We're used to great pictures in Revelation. So here's Jesus on the throne, king of history, who owes us nothing, gives us everything. So here he is on the throne, We have nothing we can do to erase our past, and Jesus says, I'm extending to you life, new start, Holy Spirit, just take it. What a deal. He did all the suffering and now says, take it and drink. You would think that's, that's the best thing in the world, but throughout history, continuing today, the majority of the world does not take that drink. In other words, most of Spartanburg today, most of Spartanburg today did not wake up and say, run to the throne of Christ and say, I want that new life. Most see it and do not run to Christ to drink it. And Jesus said, what it takes to be saved is coming to the throne to him and receive the water of Uh, of life. Now, Jesus, we're not surprised John would use this imagery because Jesus preceded him in his earthly ministry teaching the people in Jerusalem. This is what Jesus said in John 7. Let anyone who is thirsty come. Come, you gotta come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them and by this he meant the Spirit. So what I want you to see today is that Jesus Christ, how he equates thirst for him with belief in him. They're one and the same. Jesus just redefines it. Throughout the book of John, he does this. I mean, even right here, let anyone who is thirsty come. So you say, what does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? It means to be thirsty for him. It means to come to him. In the previous chapter, John 6, he says he even equated it to be hungry for him. And every time he says it, he equates it with belief. Thirsting or believing is thirsting. Believing is hungering. Believing is coming. Believing is welcoming. They're all the same. The belief has this affection part to it versus what we'll see later in the sermon, a belief without affection is not not belief. So what does it take to be a Christian? You thirst uh, for your life to be surrounded by God, filled with God, changed by God. So no matter what you believe about Jesus, if you don't, sorry, I touched that. No matter what you believe about Jesus, if you do not thirst for him, your belief is false. It's not authentic belief, it's not saving belief. Believing is thirsting, believing is hungering, believing is coming to him. So if there's anything you must do for Jesus to save you, it's only one thing, and that's to thirst, or to believe, but he says here, and in John 21, true belief, always thirst. No thirst, no belief. If you want to know why the Western Church is here in the states and other parts of the world, why it's so weak now, it's because we have invented this category of a belief in Christ that does not thirst for Christ, and it's non-existent. I believe, but I don't want Him. That's the most illogical thing I think I could ever say. I believe Christ, but I don't want Christ. That is not because you have a lot of people in the church. Watch this. I believe. Let me say this: I believe he's the son of God. I believe he was born by the Virgin Mary. I believe he died on the cross for sins. I believe he rose from the dead. They can say that and then say, but I do not want him. I do not thirst for him. I do not hunger for him. I do not welcome him. That's not biblical belief. Believing is thirsting. Are these people... All their life they've believed these facts and yet they've never walked to the throne in Revelation 21 and said, give me that water, Lord, please. Change my life. Because thirsting, this concept of thirsting is so important. Believing is thirsting. I wrote a prayer, it's not perfect, but I wanna let you know what I'm saying. Faith, 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 I'm saying the same thing. It's just, I want you to understand believing is thirsting. So this is how you would articulate that. Instead of praying a prayer of I believe, just use the word thirst instead of belief. And here's, here's a prayer. And by the way, all of our slides that we use on Pro Presenter are in the sermon notes every week, just, look, just like this. In the sermon notes, you can find, so if you ever wanted to repeat this prayer, like it's a prayer I pray, pray like daily. God, get rid of that. God, I thirst for the life you want to give me. I thirst for peace that you alone possess. I thirst to be saved from loving myself more than you. I thirst to treasure your worth that I do not see clearly. I thirst for Jesus to cleanse my heart of guilt. I thirst for your spirit to help me love holiness. I thirst for your power to change me where I am not able. I thirst for you to make me thirsty. So if your faith in Jesus does, is not accompanied by thirst, it's not biblical faith. Believing is thirsting, John 7, Revelation 21. Now, I gotta be very careful here because you probably have an argument going on in your mind. I certainly argued with myself <clears throat> this week to make sure I got this precise to say, am I saying that for you to be saved, you have to conjure up uh, to be thirsty for so many things that you, you have to do all of these things in order to show Jesus that you're really thirsty. What I'm not saying is that. I'm not saying you have to... Let me, thirsting will lead to doing, but thirsting is not doing. Thirsting is thirsting. But I'm trying to tell you, we have developed a faith that doesn't thirst. That we kind of just made that up. It doesn't exist. But I want to let you know, faith alone in Jesus, if it's a thirsting faith, always saves and faith alone saves. We know that Romans 3.23. I love this little side thing we have to put in this sermon because of the challenging nature of the sermon. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from religious works. We go, praise God. We could restate that in the rws translation that would be me not as reliable as some of the but it's close enough here's the translation of that in my terms a guilty person is declared not guilty by god when he believes or trusts in jesus and does not trust in his own moral and spiritual goodness So over and over again, love, bank on Romans 3.23, we're saved by faith alone. But what I'm pleading with you to hear today is that a faith that can hear that and not thirst for Jesus himself is not authentic faith. So let me make sure again, make sure we hear this. You want to be declared not guilty by God? Only one thing's going to do that. Faith in all that Jesus has done, all of his suffering, his life, teaching, suffering, resurrection. That's the only thing that saves you. What um, emotional and spiritual torture it would be to live under that I have to do 5,392 religious things? Have I gone to church enough? Have I read my Bible enough? Have I prayed enough? And have I given financially enough in order to show God that I'm, I've, I love him enough now, will you accept me? That's not what we're saying today. Belief in Jesus saves, but what we're saying is if that faith in Christ is not accompanied with thirst. The faith is not real. This is the argument that Revelation makes. Revelation 21, seven. So thirst in, in verse six, that gets you in. What does thirst do though? I told you, thirsting is thirsting. Thirsting is not doing, but thirsting always leads to doing. So you have thirst in verse six. Now here's the doing in Verse seven. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, the new earth, and I will be their God and they will be my my children. Um, Word victorious from the Greek word Nike, probably see a bunch of Nike uh, logos and things tonight at the Super Bowl. It really is a Greek word that means to compete in the arena, to fight, uh, to gain victory after a competition, it has to do spiritually with our will being given over because of our affection to Christ. We have committed our life. We are fighting against our flesh, fighting against the pressures of culture. And, and Jesus said here in verse 7 those who fight will inherit all this. So you thirst. That's what gets you in. The evidence that you have thirsted in Christ is you, you You fight. Now, is the fight gonna be, you know, I'm 63. So in my 63 years, in that time, have i had a, a lot of defeats. Have I had a, a lot of days where I didn't fight well? And uh, yes, there've been days where I, uh, you know, I lived in oppression. There have been days where I lived in doubt and despair. Uh, there have been days where it was grueling and uh, didn't have victory. That is the Christian life. That's the Christian life. So thirsting doesn't make all of the, this fighting go away. Thirsting says, uh, thirsting faith says, I will fight against my flesh, the pressures of culture, because of what Christ has freely given me. Remember the picture of Christ on the throne. He's on the throne, offers water. You can't earn it, you can't pay for it, you don't deserve it. He gives it. You drink it. It produces fighting in your heart against flesh and against culture pressures. And but it's going to be hard. Look what Paul told the Roman Christians who were being persecuted for their faith. Verse 36, Romans 8, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So you're in this fight, but you're not alone because you've, you've drunk in Jesus. He loves you. You love him. You're fighting with him. And once again, there's that word Nike in the end of verse 37. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So if you've come to Christ, You're not satisfied anymore with just head knowledge, just belief, but you've come to Jesus and drunk in his life, it will produce this conquering, purposeful life. In fact, that word Nike there is very interesting. It's not just really the word Nike there. It's the Greek word actually, hyper Nike, which means that's how it's translated, more than conquerors. You'd say, how can I be more than a conqueror? Well, if you're, if, you're, if you're conquering something, you just win. But more than a conqueror, as he said here in Romans 8, you win by losing, you win by suffering. So none of this thing that I'm saying today, none of this Christian life I'm describing is an easy life. It's just that if you're not engaged in the fight against flesh, against the pressures of culture, your faith is not a thirsting. You're not drunk from him. When you drink from him, his life comes into your life. Let me say it this way: God leads us to battle the forces of hell while we walk on the path to heaven. And if you say I'm not going to battle, it's because you've never drunk from the cup in Christ's hands. You just believe, but it's a false belief. It's a dead belief. Um, and the reason why we know it's not a fault, it is a, it's a false belief. The half-brother of Jesus, James, told us that. uh, Let's see, James chapter 2. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that. So what James tells us is that how you live your life is what proves unmistakable evidence of a true faith. You've truly drunk from Christ. So here in verse 19, we see that even the demons have faith. Yet we've never seen any demon in scripture running to the throne of Christ in Revelation 21 and saying, change my life. Demons believe but they don't go to the throne of Christ to be changed. They don't drink from him. They believe, but they don't come, they don't feast, they don't eat, they don't thirst. Believing is thirsting. John 7, Revelation chapter 21. And the the reason why it's important to clarify this is because Churches are filled throughout the nation with people who could make a hundred on a theological pop quiz. If you were to ask them all the answers of, uh, or all the questions that we know, yes, they would get every one of them right, but if you say, do you thirst for Jesus to change your life? No. Unwilling to fight against the flesh, unwilling to fight against the pressures of culture. And it's inauthentic faith. I could prove it from a secular example. Let's say you went to college. You had great friendships there. And for four years, y'all roamed around together. And y'all graduated for five years. Hadn't seen each other, talked, and all that. But you're the only one. You're the only one who, who got married. So now you're coming back with college friends. And you are... Uh, At a lake house, and everybody gets to meet your wife. They don't know her. So you come to the lake house. Everybody's having a good time, guys and girls. And then at some time during the weekend, the girls hang out up at the cabin. The guys go down to the lake on the dock. So the guys ask you, none of them are married. They ask you, how's married life? You say, it's great. It's fine. Then the girls ask your wife, how's married life? And she begins to weep and said, it was just a piece of paper. It was just a one-day event at a courthouse. Uh, He doesn't love me. He doesn't talk to me. He's never here. Uh, He looks at porn on his phone. Uh, He has... Having an affair with somebody in his office. He's angry. Uh, We're not really married. But we have a piece of paper. So the person to ask about, are you really married? would be the wife. Not him. Not the husband. He's he's the guys are leaving that weekend thinking they're fine, married. But the one who really knows is the one you should ask. So this is the way what James says, with Jesus, if you ask Jesus, are you and him married? Do you have real faith, thirsting, hungering, welcoming faith in him? He might give the answer, no, it was just a piece of paper. It was just a one day thing, a baptism. He said this would happen. Jesus told us this again in his earthly ministry. Jesus said, Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform miracles? These are powerful people, very religious. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, evil doer. So why did Jesus say in that chapter, uh, who would not go to heaven? He said because they're not interested in the will of God. They're just interested in doing whatever they want. Like I'll go this far with religious stuff. I'll do a miracle. I'll come and listen to the band sing. Uh, but Jesus would say, they still have their own agenda. They're not given to me. They still live their life. They've decided before they came into church how far they're going to go. They'll do this, but not that. They are not bent toward your will, Jesus, be done in my life. There's no thirst for life, life change. If you have seen what Jesus has done for you on the cross, what he's going to do for you in heaven, that produces thirst if your faith is real. Believing is thirsting. And let me just say this right where I am right now to myself. Remember, I write these things a few minutes before I come in to see you. <laughs> this has been three weeks in the making. I'm always like, working ahead, drop this over in like the future column. This has been so heavy on my heart. So I'm saying this to me. You can be the most well-known, well-versed preacher in the world. But if your intellectual knowledge is not accompanied with thirst for Jesus' will to be done in your life, your faith is fake and false. Richard, See, you didn't even get hurt by that one. It's just to me. So then John closes out this portion. If you say, man, we were sailing along with Revelation. You told us we were through with the hard parts. Well, I mean, you sort of, you know, it's it's the fault of the text. I mean, we are, next week, man, we get to look at heaven, its measurements, its beauty. Uh, But right now, John sticks us in here because he knew there was a fatal thinking in the church already in the first century. So he includes this verse, it's unbelievable. It would be right in the middle of the heaven passage. Revelation 21, eight, he just said, who goes to heaven, those who thirst. And then he said, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And this is the second death. So when I read this verse, and begin to study for it, I'm asking the question, John, why? Remember, Revelation is written to seven churches. He's writing to people who go to church every week. And he says, there has been a false thing that's crept in. And people that are even in the the seven churches that begin the book have begun to think, I can live like this and still live on the new earth and John would say what I'm saying today there's nothing more illogical in all the world to say I can live with the values of hell and expect to live eternity in heaven that's just that doesn't make any sense so and here are the values of hell cowardly this would be people who are ashamed of Christ they're ashamed of truth uh, ashamed of the church. Uh, this is like you're in a conversation. And you have an opportunity to say something about Jesus or to say something about truth and you just every time silent because you're afraid of cowardly. And not only that, in this generation, not only are there a bunch of church people quiet, when a preacher does say something boldly, it freaks the people out. It's like even knocking, knocking the boldness of the church, of pastors, Cowardly. Unbelieving. I'll come back to that. It's very important. The vile. These would be people who give themselves to things that are detestable in the sight of God. That's what it means to be vile. Murderers. Those would be people who uh, destroy innocent life by violence. Sexually immoral. Those would be people who practice in sexual activity... Uh, outside of a one-man, one-woman marriage relationship. Includes a lot of stuff. Uh, The idolaters would be people who value the things of this world more than God. Believe that stuff is more important to God. And all liars. Liars would be people who use words to secure their own... use. Sorry. Use deceitful words, false words, to uh, secure an advantage over other people. And what's so interesting in this, that um, John calls all of these people unbelievers. This is, this is the practice, not of believers, this is the practice of unbelievers. What we've done in the church Uh, which is, I mean, it's rampant. Now, we've made new categories of, oh, I'm just a cowardly Christian. Uh, I'm a murderous Christian. I'm a sexually immoral Christian. We've invented new categories. I am an idolatrous Christian. I'm a lying Christian. It's amazing. We just made it up. Made it up that you can live in a continual rhythm of unrepentance in these areas and think that the new earth will be yours. And, and, and John, in the middle of this talk of the new earth says, let me pause and say, you will not be on the new earth, you will be in uh, Lake of Fire, the second death. Now, when I read through, read through there, those, uh, you, you, they may be familiar to you and really haunting to you. They probably are haunting to all of us who are honest. Some things in there. So we need a little comfort. Here's the comfort, because Paul picks up on this very same list and puts it over in 1 Corinthians 6. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And here comes the great one. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So it's very important that we understand the verbs here. You were like this, not are. Were, hallelujah. It was like this. But a rhythm of unrepentant lifestyle, whether it's 1 Corinthians 6 or Revelation 21 is twice now, we saw it in chapter 21, Revelation, and this verse, will not inherit the kingdom of God. A Christian who does not thirst to be free from unholiness is probably not an authentic Christian or a church member that's not. Um, look, at, look at how John reminded us earlier whose name is in Christ's book. Revelation 13, eight. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. These are the people who worship culture, worship the world, approval by the, by the world. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. And we've seen before you, there's only, only two marks that can have in life. You're marked by the beast, you belong to the world or your name is in the Lamb's book of life. And the reason that Christ is called the Lamb, and we'll see that again before we finish our study. The reason why he's called the Lamb of God is, again, because of the blood sacrifice that came from his body. So here's what I'm telling you. This is very important. If your name is in the Lamb's book of life, you love the Lamb. Or let me say it this way. It is impossible to be a follower of the Lamb, yet live as an enemy of the Lamb. It's impossible. You're not thirsting. You're not feasting. You're not eating. You're not welcoming, not receiving. You're just believing in its dead, non-saving faith. Will we overcome every temptation? No. No. But because we are thirsty, here's, here's my life, I know this. My goodness, I know I have sinned. I think, I think I've sinned more than anybody here. I didn't measure that. I think I have. But I could tell you this. The moment that I depart from the lamb, my heart cries out, O oh, lamb of God, forgive me, and I run to him. People who are not saved, they continue in that pattern. No, their heart's not provoked at all. And it's a sobering reality of what will happen. Jesus said at the beginning of Revelation 3, the one who conquers, Nike, will be clothed in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. You might ask me right now today, is that a threat by Jesus that one day your name can be in and the next day it's out? No, I think he's just doing the metaphor thing again of just saying He's saying, I think you need to be careful if you're not in the process of Nike overcoming through the power of the Spirit. If you have no interest in overcoming flesh and cultural pressures, your name is already not in the book of life. You should have no comfort your name's in the book of life because you have no interest in overcoming. Now, Here's how I want to finish the message. And man, really had some people affirm this at the uh, first service. Thank you for adding that. Uh, We're headed to a new earth. We want to love the lamb, but man, do we struggle here. We just sang it. I mean, uh, song three, prone to wonder. Why can I be a believer of Christ and yet have this, I'm prone to wonder. Leave the God I love. Here's your answer right here. That should be encouraging. Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. The key key of that is in verse 7 at the beginning. What you reap, you sow. It's It's called the law of sowing and reaping. Practically, say it like this. The longer you spend your life resisting the voice of God, the more deeply sinful habits are entrenched in your brain. That's just Bible. It's called sowing and reaping. What you give yourself to is, produces habits, call them addictions. And so, um, I'll tell you this. Every Christian that I've ever spoken with who has a thirst and a hunger for God, well, they all say the same thing. I wish I would have never started that when I was young. So what's an indication right now you thirst for Jesus? You hate the fact that you started that behavior when you were young because you know how costly it is now because it dug ruts, it dug ruts in your brain. Does that mean God's going to, penalize you the rest of your life with, no, it's just telling you, parents, plead with your children and make a way for this success to not let them create ruts in their brain. Because it's a fight. It's a fight to get out of that stuff. All of us. But here's mercy. Let's say you spent 40 years digging ruts in your brain. It doesn't take 40 years for the Spirit of God to begin to undo that. And here's how it works. I just just counseled somebody in my office within the past, I'll I'll just say two months. (sighs) I say you have an addiction. You thirst for Jesus. You wanna honor the lamb. Drink in Christ in the Spirit. Okay, I know what he's gonna call me to, his will is for me to say, Start resisting this. Day one, buckle up, sissy pants. It's gonna be rough. <laughs> Say that to myself. We laugh at each other in office when we complain a little bit too much about ministry's hard. Buckle up, sissy pants. So day one might be hard. Day two maybe harder. All of a sudden, you make it to day seven. By the Spirit, with the Bible, in the church, praise songs, everything assisting you, accountability, I made it day seven. Then you make day 14, day 30. This is not a Bible verse, I could just tell you. Truth is truth, regardless of if the Bible happens to comment on it. Most people will tell you, you make it to day 90 in the power of the spirit, using the word of God, the church, you have so much new strength to resist that 40-year habit just need help for those first 90 days to really. And here's, here's again, now we're gonna turn this totally positive now. You know why we love going to the new earth? We saw it. I know y'all fell in love. I'm gonna get a little amen right here from somebody on the front row that wrote me this. Said, I love that verse. Isaiah 65, 17. I will create new heavens and a new earth and the former things will not be remembered. That's why we love heaven. My brain, which now, every time there's a trigger in my life, my brain remembers how when I was a young man, I used to satisfy that. I remember it, remember a lot of stuff. I don't want to remember it, but I do in heaven, heaven on earth, will not remember how to sin anymore. It's just so good that this is going to happen. So here's here's the million dollar question. And here's what you need to understand. Don't equate your memory of your past life with God's condemnation. Romans 8, one says, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So here's the question. Why does he let me remember if he's not condemning me? Here's the two answers. Number one, so anytime you might remember your past, I mean, right now, my head. I'm alive, I'm I'm not on the new earth yet, I remember. As I'm talking to you, I remember age 13, 14, 15. I remember past that, of course. But every time I remember anything unholy of an event in my life, I just celebrate the grace of Jesus Christ that suffered on the cross and I will not pay for that in heaven when I die. No condemnation. So your memory can actually serve to increase your worship it's not the condemning voice of God it should lead to celebration that if you can remember anything and those memories will become less but if you can remember anything it should push you to praise God for how much he loves you and offers you the cup of forgiveness unconditionally without cost oh, thank you God for loving me second reason you have a memory now and he's just, he doesn't get you there yet He gives you a memory so that you will remember that pain and not go there again. Now that's grace. Like you know all that they cost you the first time you went there, don't do that again. So he lets you remember the pain to free you from future Uh, sorrow. Now, here's where we are, winding this down, landing the plane. You can sermon this heavy, and remember, heavier for me, much heavier for me than you, because I don't want to be a liar. It doesn't look good for liars. <laughs> I want be a liar. Heavy for me. Deal with my heart. Deal with my life. Here's what you can do. You can leave here today and say, man, I need to go do a bunch of religious works to show God I'm for real. That's horrible. How many are you going to do? That's how how many are you going to do? What's that number? Nope. Or you can leave here today and say, "Well, I did a. I'm in that forty year rut. I spent the first forty years of my life living for the flesh, living for rebelling. It's too late. You, you're not believing the Bible. We already looked." He's forgiven everything. So all of these things are for the purpose of causing you today to say, I renounce dead, lifeless, intellectual belief. And I, maybe for the first time in my life, I am running to Jesus and I'm gonna drink him. I'm not going after knowledge. I'm not gonna let other people be satisfied with how much I know. I'm not gonna live behind my knowledge anymore. I'm gonna admit it's been dead, it's been intellectual, it's been factual, but it's not been him. Today I'm coming to Christ. Can't do anything about anything that's related to the past, but you can do everything about the future. My favorite C.S. Lewis quote, none of us can change the beginning of the story. All of us can change how the story ends. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.